We've been looking at the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 because we have a conviction that whatever God's going to do among us um, is going to be done primarily through the prayerfulness of, of uh, the church and of God's people. And that even though that's one reality, the other reality is that prayer is without doubt the hardest thing I think that any of us um, uh, engage in in terms of our walk with Christ. I think I personally find it the most challenging thing to sustain and to walk in, um, in a prayerful um, state before God and to keep, keep pressing on in prayer. And Jesus wants us to be persevering in prayer, but he taught us how to pray uh, here in Luke 11. So I just, we're, we're just looking through the Lord's Prayer phrase by phrase for what we can uncover there. And we've come to <clears throat> the third petition. Let's just read from the beginning of chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished... One of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread. This third um, of the requests, give us each day our daily bread, I think when you first read it and when you start to think, ponder the, the Lord's Prayer, I know that through just sheer familiarity that you've probably said it so many times in your, in your life, um, sometimes each of these phrases loses the force and the surprise. But if you were listening to Jesus on that day, hearing the Lord's Prayer for the first time, I think one thing that might strike you is that this request, give us each day our daily bread, um, it might sound a little bit trivial, on the back of what um, he's just been teaching us to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. In other words, be glorified in me and in the world. Your kingdom come. This is kind of this cosmic level of prayer. It's praying, we're saying, for yourself and for, in outward concentric circles for the world that God's will and rule and reign will be expressed on earth. And then this seemingly small and insignificant request. Give us each day our daily bread. But... I think that that would be kind of a misreading of, of what we're, we're doing here when we pray this line. Um, it's, it's my conviction and what I want, want us to sort of think about today that actually this line gives us um, some profound and um, important insight into um, the very heart of what Christian spirituality is. Um, that it touches on right at the core of what the Christian message is about. And I'll try and uh, unpack with the reason why, but it really boils down to this: that <clears throat> when you think about what the Christian faith is and what marks it out as distinct, I, I, you know, you can be described in different ways. But the essence of it is that, as Christian people, we're called to to depend on God. Um, that whereas um, we might assume that God is is looking to us to work. Um, and to transform our lives in order to become acceptable to him. The entirety of the Christian message, the essence of it, the heart of it, is that we give up that, and that we lean into God, that we depend on him and that we cast ourselves on him. That's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? And yet we find that in our, in our um, natural mode, in our kind of default way of thinking and living and acting, Depending on God is not necessarily the most automatic thing we do or the most natural thing we do. Um, if, it was, 
if it was the kind of natural recourse of the human heart to look to God and depend on him for everything, then I think everybody would be a Christian. And everybody certainly, upon hearing the gospel, would be struck with how common sense it is, how, 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 how obvious it is. But actually, when, you, when you're sharing the gospel and you're saying to people, look, the message of the gospel is that Jesus has done it all for you and all you need to do is trust in him. Typically, most people who've never heard it before are struck with the weirdness of it, how counterintuitive it is, that it actually runs against everything that you assume you know about religion, about what you think God wants of you, and that's why it cuts across all the other faiths in the world as being so utterly unique, this dependence upon God as the one who who gives it to you, who gives you salvation, who gives you grace, who gives you his mercy as a free gift. So I say that there's nothing natural about relying on and trusting in God, even the perfect um, man and woman, Adam and Eve, very quickly found themselves doing the very opposite when they, when they began to distrust God and his word and, and ate the fruit in the garden. So I'd say our natural default mode is to not rely on God, not lean into him. And so presumably, if you think it through, if, if, the, if the heart of the gospel is teaching us that we can rely upon God and his all-sufficiency, then also... That's a massive ongoing lesson that we need to keep learning in the Christian life. And not just in terms of getting saved, but in every aspect of your salvation. In every aspect of your walk with God and of your maturity. So I think I was thinking about, as one example, how the Apostle Paul, um, who, you know, by anyone's reckoning, is one of the most extraordinary Christians who've ever lived. But even he had to keep learning this. So he understood the gospel with such exceptional clarity and, and, and articulated it like no one else in history in his letters. And yet Paul had to keep coming back and learning from Christ what it means to rely upon Christ. So we find a passage like in 2 Corinthians 12 where he talks about how God gave him a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it is, but it just means some kind of cause of suffering, pain, difficulty, anxiety, maybe physical, maybe emotional, maybe temptation, something. We don't really know. And he says, I kept praying. I asked three times that it would be taken away from me. And Jesus answers him and says, "Um, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What's Jesus doing? He's trying to teach Paul that it's actually in your place of weakness that you learn most about what it means to be a Christian. It's where you learn most about what it means to start trusting God. And it's also where you learn most about the power of God that's available to you in in your walk with him. It's when when you feel most desperate, when you find yourself in most abject need. And it's the opposite is also true. That in the parts of your life where you feel most competent, most self reliant, this is where the danger creeps in, where you can begin to, to ignore God or find yourself walking away from God and not praying to God and not leaning into him, not relying on him. I think this is why um, in Mark 10, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, you know, how do I inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, here are the commands. He says, I've done those. And he says, okay, well, what you need to do is go and give away everything you have. And he leaves dismayed. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and explains essentially what's happened by saying to them that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. 
he says it's easier for a camel to go through the, the, the eye, the hole in the needle, than it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. And he's not saying that God doesn't like rich people. He's saying that rich people don't feel their need for God. They don't feel their inadequacy. They don't feel their weakness. They don't feel their, um, their kind of poverty, their spiritual poverty before him because they are materially rich. So what I'm trying to put to you is that I think the heart of the Christian faith is dependence upon God. And that this line of all the lines in the prayer is one that is, is there to teach us in our daily walk with God what dependence is and what it looks like. And I want to unpack that for you. What is it then? And what does it mean for us to depend upon, upon Christ? Um, and I think there are four, four ways I'd like to d- explain and describe this. The first is that Dependence is something that we should think of as as comprehensive. By which I mean that instead of compartmentalizing our lives, which is our natural bent, I think that when, when you come to Christ, you tend to think that there are certain parts of your life in which you need him. So when you first get saved, you you have to have realized that you're a sinner. And that you need forgiveness. So you have to realize that you need God's grace in aspects of your life. But you maybe haven't quite fully acknowledged your need in other parts of your life. And certainly we find this to be true in when you, when you start to examine your prayer life. What is it that you pray about on a day-to-day basis? I think the answer is that you probably pray about those parts of your life where you feel the weakest. Or where you feel the need and the pinch. So if you're the kind of person who worries about your, your health, um, maybe you've got poor health, that's what you'll pray about, presumably. Or if you're someone who, um, who um, is str- suffering or struggling with temptation on, on a day-to-day basis, a particular temptation, it's in that point of weakness and need that we tend to think, okay, I acknowledge my need of Christ, my need for God there. So we start chopping up our life into the things where we, we, we can see our need for God, and, and those parts that we, we tend to think um, are maybe not so spiritual or not so, um, we don't feel the weakness, we don't feel our neediness before him. But what we, the, the first thing I think that, that certainly hits me when I'm, I'm reading this line is that Jesus is bringing us right down to, to the day-to-day practicalities of life when he's talking about something so, so utterly basic as, as bread, it's just your daily bread, just food that will um, get you through the day. And he's not talking about something that's obviously spiritual here. This isn't the classic stuff of, of, um, the, of prayer. This is, this is just your next meal you're asking for, something very mundane, something very ordinary. And the only way we can really understand this is that when, when we have a big biblical understanding of who God is and, and the Bible paints a picture of a God who is both interested and involved in every aspect of life so you can trace it all the way through at the one end there are passages in the Bible that talk about God setting up and toppling empires and kingdoms that God is basically responsible for um, Obama and Cameron and all these presidents and prime ministers being in power right now and he's also the one who can topple them at, 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 in his timing he can use whatever means he wants at his disposal but then you, you trace through the scriptures 
the extent of what you could call God's sovereignty or his providence, his involvement in the world. And do you remember how Jesus puts it? He says that a sparrow doesn't drop to the ground without the heavenly, our Heavenly Father knowing about it. Um, he says that God has numbered the hairs on our heads. And when you, when you see the full spectrum of God's involvement in the world, you, you start to understand, okay, if God is that big and if he's that involved in, in every part of life, that needs to somehow be reflected in my sense of dependence upon him, my sense of need for him. So when Jesus said, for example, that apart from me you can do nothing, when he's talking about the vine, he's saying you've got to abide in the vine because apart from me you can do nothing in John 15. I think we, we would most naturally assume that that's about evangelism and prayer and studying the word and fellowship. You know, those things that we classically think of as spiritual Christian stuff. But I'm trying to say to you that when Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he had a much, much bigger view of what nothing is. He, he was talking about every part of your life. He's saying, apart from me, you can't breathe. Apart from me, you can't um, go about your, your day-to-day job. You can't use your natural gifts. You can't um, choose the right clothes. You can't do anything apart from me. You don't realize how dependent upon me you are. And if that's the bigness of our understanding of God's involvement in life, then it has some massive repercussions for our prayers. i tell you a few that jump to my mind. One is that I don't think any prayer is too small for God. I think it's possible that your prayer life isn't big enough in the sense that there are things missing from your prayer life. But I don't think it's possible to pray a prayer that is too small for God's interest and care. Because he is so involved in the detail of your life. I'm, my mum's probably going to smile at this point. But when I, was, um, when I was probably about 13 or 14. I always hesitate to tell this because it's kind of a silly story. But anyway, when I was 13 or 14, um, I used to play the, the clarinet. And um, I was, it, being a wind instrument, the more you blow down it and breathe into it, the more condensation and spit just collects inside the thing. So eventually you have to somehow soak it up or it starts to make horrible bubbling sounds. It's disgusting, I know, but that's just the reality of of breathing into a wooden tube. And um, I was heading down to church one day on a Sunday, and it was some kind of event we had. I was playing. I didn't usually play, um, but I was heading there. And in order to deal with this, this kind of condensation moisture problem inside you need to get very small thin bits of paper and put them underneath the keys and it starts to to, um, be absorbed and uh, I was walking to church and I I don't know why I even thought about doing this but I was thinking I need some cigarette papers that's the paper you use typically um, like Rizzlers and uh, being the age I was I didn't want to walk into the newsagent because it's probably illegal for me to buy them. And also someone from church might see me trying to buy cigarette papers on the way and I'd have to explain and all the rest of it. And I, I probably didn't have any money because Dad was stingy as well with pocket money at the time. <laughs> so what I did was I just prayed. I said, Lord, I need, some, I need some cigarette papers. And I walked 10 steps and there was a full pack on the ground in front of me. It was the weirdest thing that's probably ever happened to me. And a number of years later, I was, I was out walking and praying and asking God about some provision. 
And again, I found a full pack on the floor. So it's kind of like this in-joke with me and God that whenever I need some confirmation of his generosity and kindness and love for me in the detail, he gives me cigarette papers, which is... um, I only tell you just because I'm saying I don't think there's any prayer that's too small for God. And I think that's part of what Jesus is pushing us towards here. Your daily bread, the normal, ordinary stuff of life, is what God is interested in because he's actually upholding you by the power of his word. It means that no part of your, your life is too unspiritual. I know we laugh at people who pray about their favorite sports teams and so on. Um, the problem isn't really that God's not interested in those things. It's pro- probably the problem is that you're too interested in those things. But the reality is that God does care about every facet and part of our, our loves and our passions and our needs and our day-to-day, the stuff of life. It, it's he's into it and that means also if we're going to put it slightly more negatively that there's a need to be prayerful about all of life because there is no part of life that you can consider secure or safe and I mean in that sense that if we're going to take the word of God seriously that it says in Colossians 1 that in him all things hold together and it says in Hebrews 1 that um that he upholds all things by the word of his power, then that means that there is nothing you can take for granted in life because Christ is upholding it by his grace and kindness. And we can't presume on his kindness. So God wants people to be both grateful for and to come to him in in just daily requests for the simple stuff of life. And that's what I mean when I say that this, this, this sense of dependence ought to be something comprehensive that touches every part of your, your spirituality and your life and your being as a human. Secondly, this sense of dependence is, is ongoing. Here's what I mean. When you think about what, what, what maturity is in normal growth from, from being a baby like Evelyn all the way through to adulthood... Typically, maturity is, is growing in independence. So when you're a newborn, your nappies are changed every hour or two, it seems, um, and you're fed, or um, well, at least you have eight nappies a day, you're fed every couple of hours. It's just an endless cycle of absolute and abject dependence upon the kindness of, of those who are taking care of you. And one of the markers that we look for for maturity from a very young age is that a person is, 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 is able to grow in independence, that they can more and more become self-sufficient. It gets to the point where ideally, um, by a certain age, you have left home, you are um, no longer financially dependent upon your parents, and eventually it moves to a stage where the tables turn. And and where your parents become, to some extent, dependent upon you, where you've reached the peak of your powers and your maturity as a human. That's how we understand growth on natural terms. And there are elements of that in the Christian life. You know, it talks in the New Testament about um, no longer needing milk, but, but growing in to be able to eat meat in terms of doctrine and teaching. But, but here's the thing. Christian maturity is is in many senses the very opposite of what natural maturity is because it's not, it's not growing in greater independence as a Christian. It's growing in, in deeper understanding of your, your reliance upon God. 
so that maturity in God is equal to reliance upon him. The greater and deeper and more profound a person's walk with Christ is, the more they are aware of their weaknesses. I think that's why I was wanting you to see what Jesus was trying to teach Paul. My grace is sufficient because my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, if you're going to grow in your faith, you need to realize how much you need me. And that that needs to be an ongoing thing. So it's, it's kind of like a Benjamin Button scenario for Christians. That the older you get in the Christian life, the more babyish you should become before God. Now, I think this comes across really clearly in the prayer. In, in the very fact that Jesus is teaching us to ask for daily bread. He says, give us each day our daily bread. To put it positively, he's saying that God wants you to keep coming to him every single day in greater, greater dependence upon him, like a baby does with its, to its parent. And never stop, never cease coming to him in that way. To put it negatively, it means that God isn't really guaranteeing you anything beyond the next 24 hours. There's nothing you should take for granted in life. One of the greatest pictures of what I'm trying to get put across to you of this this deepening, ongoing, daily sense of, of dependence upon God is something that um, it has that kind of ongoing sense. It doesn't fade away as you grow mature. Is the, the story of the Israelites in the wilderness, how in Exodus 16 they're complaining God's put them in a desert where they have no resources and they're hungry, they're growing, they, they need food. And God gives them, he basically rains down Something a bit like bread from the sky um, in the, what's called manna. And one of the intriguing things about the story of the manna is that Moses um, has to give them these instructions that they're not allowed to gather more than what they need to eat for that day. If they gather more, it goes off. It goes rotten. It gets maggots in it and it stinks. Why on earth, except for, of course on a Friday when they can gather twice as much in order to prepare for the Sabbath. But it's the one exception God gave them. Why did God make it that way? And the answer is, of course, that God wanted them to, to realize how reliable he is as a father. When you, if you were an Israelite and you went out and, uh, and, and decided, I'm going to gather twice as much manna today, um, because I'm, the reason, of course, would be I'm not sure if it's going to be any there tomorrow. In other words, there would be a kind of sinful distrust of the fatherly kindness of God would be the motive for for gathering more. And so God says, no, you only need to gather what is sufficient for this day because I'm going to be here tomorrow and I'm going to provide for you tomorrow. It's the same, isn't it, as what Jesus says, that sufficient for the day are its own worries. Why are you worrying about tomorrow, which you can't control, which you can't really influence? God's in charge of all that. Just worry about this day. So when I say that this is an ongoing thing, I think it has to be stressed now more than ever, because we live in, we live in a society where... Um, well, we're just too safe in one sense. Um, we, have, we have insurance for everything. Our homes, our con- the content of our homes, the building, the car, your, your life, 
You even have insurance to cover your insurance. I don't know if this is the same in the States, but if you have a no claims discount that's built up over years of not having an accident in the car, you can buy an extra insurance to protect it in case you do have an accident so that your discount isn't affected. So we live in a world where we're just used to safety buffers upon buffers, where nothing can necessarily touch you in the way that it can, where there is in parts of the world where these safety nets don't exist. We have the NHS, where, which is free at the point of need. Um, sorry, I know that's not true in the States, but I, I, maybe it is now. I'm not really clear on that. <laughs> we, have, um, we have benefits where if you are made redundant tomorrow, don't worry, the government's going to pick up the tab and make sure that you don't starve. We have credit cards so that even if you run out of cash, um, somebody's willing to borrow you money even if they're going to scam you in the end. And we, we have pension plans and wars don't take place on our doorstep, certainly not here in Britain. They take place overseas um, at the risk of people we've, we've normally never met and don't involve us. So the dangers of life are manifestly uh, smaller than they were for previous generations and are for other people in parts of the world. And I wonder what effect does this have on us, on our thinking about life and, of course, on our spirituality. And I think the answer is that surely it makes us more risk-averse. Even, even those who are most courageous as Christians and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to another part of the world into deepest, darkest countries where they've never heard about Jesus. Even there, these days, they're not beyond the reach of um, communication and usually an airplane to get home if and when they need to or if they're going to have a baby or whatever's taking place in life. So we have so many safety buffers that I think it, that can have a negative effect on our sense of, of need for God. You think about when Jesus was, um, was saying this, he's saying, give us... He's teaching them to pray, give us our daily bread. A lot of people that he was talking to would have lived on the bread line and would have felt that, that daily sense of, of worry for where the next meal is going to come from. Now, part, that might then lead us to then react and say, well, maybe, therefore, this prayer isn't really for us. Um, we can just focus on the stuff that we, we can't take for granted we can take for granted that we're going to get our next meal. But I think the very opposite is true. I think that people who, who feel daily hunger or daily threat or daily danger are the people most likely to be praying this stuff anyway. I think the reason Jesus is teaching us to pray like this is precisely because people who feel their sense of sufficiency and strength and competence and intelligence and safety in life are those who most need to take hold of their need to be praying to God with a sense of their weakness in, in all of life. So this dependence is comprehensive and it's ongoing. And thirdly, I would add this, that this dependence on God is something that's simple. I mean it in this way, that... I think Jesus is pushing us towards an understanding of the of at least the potential for a deepening spirituality in in the sim, in the simplicity of life. And here's what I'm, I'm wanting to put across to you: that when you read the Bible and your history books, you'll find many, many examples of of great men and women of God who 
have discovered and, and recognized the power of a simple life as a means for deepening your walk with Christ. So if we're thinking about biblical examples, the ones that jump to mind are examples like Daniel. Daniel, you've got to understand what was happening to Daniel when he was taken captive from being a very promising teenager in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon at Nebuchadnezzar's whim. They begin to strip away your sense of national identity. They're they're taught a new language, they're given new names that reflect the gods that the Babylonians were worshipping. And Daniel, being an intelligent and God-fearing man, understands what's going on. And he makes the famous decision, doesn't he, that I'm not going to, he says, I'm not going to eat your meat or drink your wine. And the burning question when you're reading Daniel 1 and you're seeing this story unfold is why on earth did he make that decision? Because when you go back and read the Old Testament scriptures, the law that Daniel would have been brought up understanding and reading, he wouldn't have been breaking the law to eat the meat and to drink the wine. So the question then comes back, well, why didn't he feel at liberty to do it? Why did he say no and say, I'm going to be vegetarian? And I think the answer and the best answer you can give is this. That Daniel understood that he was being sucked into a world of lavishness and opulence. And his identity was being stripped away so that soon enough he was going to be seduced from being one of the faithful young men of Israel to becoming, just like any other promising university student in the capital of the empire with the potential of a high-ranking place in the civil service of the empire. That he was being enculturated and he was being seduced by it all. And Daniel, therefore, in my understanding of it, refuses to eat the meat and drink the wine because he felt he had to put a a line in the ground and say, I've come this far, but I'm not going to cross. I'm not going to indulge in everything that's on offer here because I need to keep some sense of my awareness of God in it all and my dependence upon him as my father. You see this reflected in the lives of other saints in the scriptures, someone like John the Baptist. Why did he live in the wilderness wearing you know coarse animal fur and skin garments and eating locusts and, and wild honey why did he live that kind of lifestyle and the answer I think is that it's partly to do with his Nazarite vow but the fundamental reasoning that's behind the whole Nazarite vow what John the Baptist was pushing towards is that he, he had to strip away everything that might seduce him to become just like every other person who was was backsliding from God. And he, wanted to be, he wanted to live a simple life that, that reflected a daily dependence upon his father. Jesus is another example. He was a businessman. He turns his back on it and becomes homeless. He says, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He, he, he willingly became homeless. And the question is, why? I think it has, again, this thing of wanting to push towards a simple life in order that he can sense his, his need for the Father and his need for God's daily provision. You can read your, your, the books of, of saints through history and find the same thing reflected time and time again. My wife and I are listening to a biography of William Wilberforce, the, the great campaigner against slavery. And Wilberforce, when he, he was a young politician at the time, when he, he came to faith in Christ and became an evangelical believer, 
one of the, the ways that he expressed that faith was that he began to strip away all the kind of licentious living and indulgence that he had been involved in before. He was a rich guy. He had plenty of money in the bank. And he used his money to go and have, along with all the other parliamentarians at the time, go and have these lavish dinners every single night, staying up late, drinking, and all the rest of it. And he began to strip back, strip back his lifestyle so that he would eat simple food and not too much of it because he felt that in living a simple life, he was able to better commune with God. And that the opposite is also true, that the more you get indulged, you know it's at Christmas is the time when you feel this more than ever. The more that we indulge ourselves greedily, sometimes the more our spiritual life begins to feel flabby and weak as well. Our body is... Is, 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 is a visible picture of what's also happening internally. So the fatter we get, the more un, unhealthy we are spiritually. And the same is true of a guy like Wesley. We could go on giving more and more examples of these kinds of people. But I think the point holds that Christians through history have recognized the power of, of a simple life as, as a means, as a grace, as a, as a potential for enjoying God more in day-to-day life. Now, I know that we'll immediately want to push back and ask the question, well, does that mean that the good things of life are, in some sense, wrong or in some sense sinful? And I think the answer is clearly no. Um, When you understand the big picture of the Bible, you know that every good thing comes from God and is there for us. Paul puts it really clearly in 1 Timothy 4. He says, everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. I think it's a really wonderful text to keep in mind as you're about to enter the season of festivity. Let's not get sort of legalistic about this kind of stuff. But I think the point holds, though, that a consistently lavish An excessive lifestyle can only have negative consequences on your walk with God. And for the simple reason that the the more you you find your pleasure in created things, normally the less you search for it in God. And that's why fasting is so powerful. As one writer put it, fasting is feasting. Fasting is, is deliberate renunciation of earthly pleasure so that you can feast on the goodness of God. As Psalm 34 puts it, taste and see that the Lord is good. I think this comes across in this prayer in the very fact that Jesus is, is telling us to pray for something that is just a basic need and not a want. It's interesting that he doesn't tell us here, as the prosperity people might convince us, he doesn't tell us to pray something like, give us today our six-bedroom house. Give us today our Bentley and our, our gold and our diamond-encrusted rings. He doesn't tell us to pray that. He, he pushes us rather to say, come to your father and ask for your, your essential needs in life. He's pushing us towards an understanding of The fact that we can rely on him, but also the fact that we can take pleasure in the basic essentials that God has given to us. Dependence is simple. And I think a couple of questions I think we ought to be asking ourselves in the light of what I'm trying to say is this. One is, can you find sweetness and satisfaction in the simple gifts of God? 
your bread and water and sleep and a roof over your head. I think when we sense discontentment creeping in, it's usually an indicator of a much deeper spiritual problem. That you're trying to find too much joy in the stuff of life. Another question you want to ask is this. Can I find enjoyment in God rather than in just the pleasures of life? Which aren't in and of themselves wrong. But are you enjoying God in your day-to-day life, in prayer, and in, your, in the reading of the word? Are you feasting on him? I think in Jesus teaching us to pray for what is a need rather than a want, he is pushing us towards this understanding that dependence on God is dependence for the simple things of life in which there ought to be sweet satisfaction and enjoyment. Finally, dependence is, is confident. I think it would be wrong to um, read this prayer as, as sounding like um, Oliver Twist, you know, please sir, can I have some more, as a kind of beggar's request on your face before God, just desperately wanting some bread. I don't think that's how Jesus wants us to read it at all. Because if you go on and read further on in Luke 11, he begins to talk about the kindness of our Father who wouldn't withhold good things from us. So rather the very opposite is true. That what Jesus is wanting to press home to us is that God will take care of the basic stuff of life. He will not let you go hungry. He's your Father. You just need to ask him for the things you need. The reason why I stress this is because I think that we're, we're often prone to anxiety. And when you read the Bible, you find that God actually cares about your, your emotional state. He cares about whether you're walking in confident trust of him or whether you're walking in fear and anxiety on a day-to-day basis. He cares about your emotions, essentially, it comes, it's obvious in Joshua 1, when Joshua is taken over from Moses, and he's now the leader of the people of Israel, and not only the people, but God himself say to Joshua, be courageous, don't be afraid. And they say it repeatedly, time and time again. It's a command from God, I don't want you to be afraid. Why? Because your fear reveals your theology, your understanding of who God is. We could push it harder and even, even say this. That if Jesus told us in, in Matthew 6, don't be anxious, then for us to walk in anxiety on a day-to-day basis is, is a revealer of, of a sinful mistrust in our heart for our Heavenly Father. And so for us to learn to pray this prayer, give us this day our daily bread is to learn in increasing experience and trust and, and the testimony of days, then weeks, then months, then years of God's faithfulness, that he is reliable. It's something we take from the word of God, but it's also something that you learn when you reflect back on, on the years of his faithfulness to you. And dependence on God is something that ought to be confident and not in a proud way, of course. The very opposite. In a humble way. You're saying, I take God at his word. I trust that he's not going to forsake us. This is the, the kind of faith which the, the Bible talks about and shows us. You, some of the um, 
the verses that jump to mind are, an example is in Psalm 37, where he says this, he says, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. And we think back to how God challenged the Israelites in in Malachi to be generous and to start giving to the temple. And he says, okay, here's the thing. You can just test me and see if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven and pour in onto you every blessing that you need. A Christian, when they come to pray, ought to have that steadfast confidence that they're praying to a father who won't mishear them, won't confuse what's being said, won't ignore them, won't begrudge giving them what they need, but they can come with absolute confidence before him. And that oughtn't be true only for the things you need in life, the things you're worried about. That also ought to be true of your your Christian faith itself, of your saving faith. Because the one thing that ought to characterize true, genuine believers in Jesus Christ is that in their day-to-day walk with God, they feel confidence that they are belonging to Him. That's how the gospel separates. That's the dividing line between us who belong to God and those who don't. That we can say with absolute assurance and absolute certainty that we are Christ's. The reason, of course, is because nothing of your salvation depends upon you. If it did, you would be, it would be sort of reasonable and legitimate and totally understandable for you to be anxious about your standing before God. You know, if it was like when you, you say to a friend who needs a job and you say, okay, I can probably set you up with an interview. I think some people understand their faith that way, that Jesus has kind of approached them and said, okay, I'll set you up with an interview before the Father, but you better perform. I'll get you halfway, but you need to make sure that you do the rest of the work. And it is nothing like that. That is just total denial and misrepresentation of what the gospel of its heart is. Jesus says, no, I'm giving it to you gratis, completely free. And therefore, what it means to be a Christian in the day-to-day needs of life, your daily bread, but also in the great matter of your eternal security before the Father. It's the same kind of faith that runs all the way through from the mundane right the way through to your eternal destiny. What it means to be a Christian is that you have confidence that God is enough and He has done it all. And I just want to ask us as, as we're closing, you know, in light of what this prayer is teaching us, are you, are you consciously depending on God for the things, the stuff of your life? Are you depending on him in the ways that I've been describing, comprehensively for every part of your life, in increasing measure on a daily basis? Are you confident that as a loving father, he's, he's got your needs in his mind and in his heart? Father, it is with such grateful hearts that we, we think on the words of Christ, the teaching of Christ, and all that he showed us about what it means to know you, that he showed us, he modeled to us what it is to be a son before a father. And Lord, as your children, we want to come to you now and confess, first of all, that we have been so often fearful and anxious. 
Lord, we, we often doubt that you have our best interests at heart, which is why we take things into our own hands or we refuse to pray about the things that we need. And it's why we also walk in a sense of self-sufficiency and competence in the parts of our life that we think we're naturally good at or where we, we have no threat or danger. But Lord, I pray that more and more you teach us as you taught Paul that your grace and your power is made perfect in weakness. And Lord, that if it weren't for your kindness, every good thing that we enjoy now would, would be taken away. We have no rights before you, but we have grace. And that you keep blessing us day after day. And I pray, Lord God, that where there is fear, you just lift it off and take it away. Where there's anxiety, Lord, that we would learn to trust you. And Lord, that our testimony would be like that of the psalmist, that we've never seen the righteous hungry or begging for bread. That because we're your children, you're going to take care of us. May that reflect not only our personal walk with you, but it may also be reflected in the journey that we have before us as a church. Lord, look upon our needs. Look upon our needs for for finances in the future and for a building and, Lord God, for so much that's beyond our grasp right now. Lord, we're trusting you. Give us this day our daily bread, I pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.